Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Today's episode was recorded live in front of a classroom. We visited uh, John Camp's course on civil discourse. Uh, we recorded that presentation uh, for this podcast, so hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome, students. Thank you very much for letting Scott and me come to your class today. I want to give you a little bit of an intro of what we do and let Scott also chime in as he will, because uh, he likes to chime in. <clears throat> uh, this is our podcast is called Christians in the Public Square, and we started it several years ago, well, a few years ago, because he and I would have lots of discussions about our political differences, uh, but we would always remind each other and remind ourselves that our main loyalty is not to any government, but to the kingdom of God. We are Christians first. Um, but that doesn't mean how we behave as state citizens is irrelevant. It just means that we have different dis- different ideas about it, and we never let it interfere with our loyalty to each other or to Christ, because that's the most important thing. That said, we have vigorous debates, and we have our, our three... Three tenets. Three tenets. I was thinking, is the word tenant the best? Our three tenets of every podcast episode, which are always the same. And number one is... Let your flag fly proudly. Let your flag fly proudly. So I identify mostly as a libertarian or also called a classical liberal. And I will be saying things to you today that uh, reflect that viewpoint. The second tenet... Sacred cows make great barbecue. What does that even mean? Sacred cows make great barbecue. We um, will scoff at orthodoxy whenever we wish. (laughs) Right. And uh, our most important, perhaps, tenet, which is that we are bros before politicos. So we have um, probably 15 episodes of this podcast. This is number 16. Number 16. Well, boy, I I guessed just right, didn't I? All right. And that's that's the way we try to conduct ourselves in each podcast is by remembering those three things. So... Given that this is a 50-minute class, uh, we we asked Dr. Camp if he would um, to let you ask questions, which we will ask you to do in a moment. But as by way of introduction, I want to draw your attention to this slide. And Dr. Camp, can I get you to maximize that slide? This slide is available in show notes if you want to yeah, be able to look at down it. down at the bottom where the arrows. There you go. I want to refer to a book by an economist named Arnold Kling. That came out a few years ago, uh, and it's been very beneficial to people who, I I expect it would be very beneficial to communication professors as well, John, but uh, in this book, he said, when people talk about politics, the language they use often settles around three different paradigms, and he names these the oppressed versus oppressor, or the savage versus civilized, or the coerced versus free paradigms. So, the, as in order to assign labels that we commonly assign, he said, in general, people who consider themselves progressives, political progressives, often talk about policies and um, civil consequences of policies 
and ways to think about new policy in terms of who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed. So when you think about something, say, like uh, healthcare legislation, and healthcare legislation, a progressive, Kling would argue, will often talk about how there are certain people in society who are oppressed by bad healthcare policies, by people whose uh, main object it is to make money, like the insurance companies or uh, the wealthy class or the, even the political class. Those are the oppressors and the people who don't have health care are the oppressed, and we should think about policy in that way. Versus the middle paradigm, um, which he labels conservative or, uh, in many cases, Republican, who think of um, society in stages that grow to maturity towards civilized society. So a civilized society can find ways to take care of people who are sick um, and people who, and societies that can't figure that out are just, they are more savage or they are less refined. And we should think about policies that try to make us a more civilized society without thinking about who's oppressing whom, but just how a society should evolve. So also the middle, the middle paradigm up there could also, um, it, it treats matters like, should we build casinos? Or should we allow for prostitution to be legal? Well, a civilized society would not do that. A society that's more savage might, but we should not allow um, activities like that to be public and free. Also, I think, wouldn't it be fair to describe this as kind of, um, that civilization could, you know, a, a good um, uh, synonym for that might be institutions, right, has an institutional approach. I don't mean just institutions like universities, but I mean institutions like justice or the justice system, um, institutions that uh, kind of represent stability um, and bring stability to a social group. So they don't necessarily have to be um, just about, you know, I don't mean civilized like wearing a, a, a tuxedo, civilized in terms of civilized institutionally. Right. And so then the third paradigm at the bottom is one where people talk about policies and consequences in societies in terms of who is free and who is coerced. And that usually falls upon people with a libertarian viewpoint. And these are big generalizations, by the way. I'm making huge sweeping statements, as Kling does. And so um, if a, a libertarian might say, you know, people should be free to go into a casino or not or to hire a prostitute or not. It has nothing to do with his or her neighbor, um, whether a person wants to take part in activities that some might find uncivilized or oppressive to some population groups. People should be free to do what they want except to harm his or her neighbor with harm construed narrowly. So when Kling presents these three ways of thinking about uh, political language, what he is saying is not, here is the best one. He's saying, here's why people often fail to communicate very well, because they are on a different axis from the person they're speaking to. And I have found this very informative uh, whenever I speak about my political thoughts and viewpoints, and especially as when Scott and I talked about Kling's paradigms uh, here, we, off, we realized that one of the reasons he and I get along so well is because he understands I'm on a certain 
rung of this, and I understand where he is, and we often try to speak in each other's language to try to perhaps sway the other one toward our belief. Uh, and there's, a, there's a reason for what we're doing here. I, I want you to see that um, as, a, as a group of brothers who are brothers bef- bros before politicos, that it's important to us that we understand one another. It's important to me to understand my brother. <clears throat> And it's important to him to understand me as well. I think it's harder for him to understand me. But, uh, (laughs) and one of the ways that we like to, uh, uh, to exercise this is by, um, instead of saying where I, uh, here I stand, this is where my brother stands. So, um, Cole is a, I think what we could call a free market libertarian. So it's a, it's, uh, this fits within the, the idea of classical liberalism. It's not um, liberal. Classic liberalism is not liberal in the pejorative sense that we oftentimes hear it bandied about in our culture, uh, in our contemporary culture. But classical libertarian liberalism is libertarianism. This idea that when I am my most free, then I am uh, most free to flourish. And so the idea of flourishing is really nested in this um, uh, this context of liberty of freedom, freedom to make choices, freedom to self-determine, uh, and, uh, and freedom to make, um, make decisions that may lead me down paths or may lead me in directions that, I'm not, uh, that are not in my own best interest, but I get to make those. I get to make that decision. I get to make that determination. And that uh, whenever institutions or whenever the public in, uh, or any other um, uh, force wants to take that liberty away from me, that is in and of itself a form of, um, of oppression, that uh, I should be free. And I should be free to use my money how I see fit. Um, I should be free to give to whatever charities uh, are in my, uh, uh, well, fit within my, my model of good, of good, what the good is. And... Um, and I should also be able to invest uh, my money as freely as I want to. Uh, now, there's a caveat to where Cole is coming from, and the caveat is I'm also responsible for the consequences of my decisions. I'm, I'm responsible for my choices. If I choose to have children, I'm responsible to take care of them and to edu- make sure that they're educated. If I choose to, um, to open a business and the business goes belly up, I'm the one who should be losing, not everyone else, and my risk should not be spread out amongst uh, the public. So, um, you know, I think, I think one of the things that uh, critics of libertarianism often miss is the element of individual responsibility that goes along with this idea of individual liberty, that I own my consequences for making my decisions. How's that, buddy? That is really good. You did a great job of explaining. I would, I would tweak one thing. Not yeah. tweak it. I would just add it, and that is the way that this connects with my Christianity is that I feel a libertarian government and, and political system most allows me to be a Christian because I am free from state oppression. Okay, let me tell you about Scott. Scott is what we would call... Um, Definitely a progressive, and a, I often talk about you as being a true little s socialist, small s socialist. Uh, but Scott believes that there is 
violence and oppression inherent in every power system. So whereas I might celebrate the free market and say, look at all the good it does, Scott would say, yes, but it also has winners and losers, and it it tends to gain power at the top and oppress people on the way down. So you can't have... uh, You cannot literally be in charge of your own destiny without being part of a society, and society is full of systems that have power going down. So a true progressive like Scott would say, I'm going to look for ways to turn knobs and adjust levers and insert laws and stuff to tweak systems so that they oppress less and perhaps not at all. And the way this intersects with his Christianity, is not much, right? Because you have said, you have said you you have that your desire to redistribute wealth from people who don't have it because of oppressive systems, or who do have it to, toward people who don't, is not because you're trying to be a good Christian, but because you believe that the systems are corrupt. That's right. Okay. Yeah. The, I, so I would not. Um, there is a branch of theology called liberation theology that is very similar to what uh, uh, to what um, where my position is, except that it is theologically driven, and I don't agree with that uh, point. I mean, I do as a theology, but I don't like to see those connected, in part because that is another form of oppression where religion itself can be a form of oppression uh, on a society. The market can, the government can. So it would. It's really just. A, I would. <clears throat> I would say one thing, which is, uh, thank you, you did a fine job. And I would say one thing is, I don't think we can ever limit oppression. As soon as you take oppression out in one place, it reemerges in another. So it's, uh, I don't believe that there is a, a society where oppression doesn't happen. Um, it's just that um, we have to be continually vigilant to ensure that wherever oppression is happening, it's militated. It's, it's uh, militated against? Mitigated Maybe mitigated. Militated is the wrong word, I think. Although I might say that it's absolutely true. That's a Freudian slip. So before, I, I, we really want to hear from you guys. So I want to say one more thing by way of introduction, and then I will stop. And that is let's get really boots on the ground. If Scott is driving his car through downtown X, and I'm driving my car through downtown X, and we see a person on the street who is needy, um, my response would be, Huh, here's a person who's needy. I want to if I want to decide whether this person needs help, and if I decide that the person does not need help for any reason, including a hundred things that I might, after talking with the person, decide, you know what, I'd rather help over here instead of this person because I want to judge where my money goes to help people. Um, I should be free to do that. And I think Scott would say, regardless of how this person got here, he needs help. And he is a person who is not receiving enough material things to live a certain way. And so we need to check and see in this city what we can do to help get him some help, some money, or some care, some felt need care. So I see a need as as a moment of personal decision, and perhaps persuasion, maybe I say, hey, John, there are people in this town who need help, and I want to persuade you to help me help them. And Scott might say, we need a law that makes us all help them. 
That's harsh, but I don't mean it to sound harsh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay. We need a law that helps redistribute money because this person needs help, whether Cole likes it or not. I, I'm not sure that I would uh, always jump to the law. I want to have a discussion about the system and, and engage with the system in ways that, that limit the oppression that is on him. I will admit that there is – he has individual agency as well. Okay. And I do want him to flourish as an individual, but I would be, I, 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 I think it's, I think it's going too quickly to uh, nomism to say that I'm always interested in a law to change thing. I'm, I'm always interested in addressing the systems of power that influence uh, an individual's flourishing. Okay. Now, um, I think one of the reasons that I really appreciated uh, Cole bringing up Kling is because. Um, one of the things I think you can you can uh, uh, hear in us is that we're living on different axes, right? That Cole definitely fits in this libertarian axis between um, a coercion and lib- and liberty or freedom, and that makes a lot of sense uh, when you when you know Cole and you hear where he's coming from. It makes a great deal of sense, and what's probably not fair for me to do is to assume that. Um, he doesn't have, first of all, that he doesn't have these other priorities also in mind. It's just that they are not as important. They are not as high in priority. Uh, would that be fair? Oh, yes. I do know that there are people who oppress other people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but also, um, it helps me understand where my brother is coming from, and that is extremely important. It's where I was coming back to, to the beginning. I, I think this is the, Im- the imperative, is being able to, um, to understand where someone that I intend to love and care about for the rest of my life, uh, why, that, why that is different uh, and why he thinks differently than I think is because he has a different priority than I have, and I have a different one, and, uh, and he does a fine job of trying to understand um, the paradigms and, and, the, uh, and the priorities that are important to me as well. So, like, right here, we're in verse just between y'all two. Um, you can see, like, there's civil discourse. You are both talking to each other, and you're all are having a discussion over the topic. Where do you think uh, there comes that breaking point where people stop talking? Because generally you see it whenever the more people you gather of certain groups and they go against each other, there's no civil discourse at all. So where do you think that point is of the number of people where that conversation just breaks down? That's a really great question, and I'm certain that Dr. Camp will have something to say about this. Uh, Really, but I think my background, my academic background is in rhetoric, and so I think people have become convinced that other people's words are able to harm them in such a way that they are no longer able to say, I want to hear what you have to say, and I'm going to listen. And even if I utterly disagree, I'm going to say, thank you, I understand you, and go my own way. We have what I would consider um, speaking situations set up where people yell and scream at each other. And I often think that they believe the opponent, if the opponent's opinion wins, it's going to significantly harm them. So the stakes are very high. You know, this is kind of a low-stakes situation. We're all sitting in this nice place. No one has a gun. I know that if you did, you probably wouldn't throw it at me or shoot me or throw anything on your table. But if you get people who don't know each other in the middle of a city to start shouting, 
I think they're not convinced that their words cannot somehow hurt them materially and they fear for their safety, even though that might be an irrational fear. I, um, I agree. I think the, the question of what's at stake is, is really important. I also think that there are different reasons for self-expression. One might be persuasion. One might be coercion. And another might be uh, um, self-expression or, or, you know, uh, um, giving voice to my own, to my own perspective. And the, I think one of the challenges is that we sometimes assume that um, any one of that that the, the other speaker is engaging in something, one of the other forms of communication or expression, then, um, well, let me see if I can rephrase that. I might assume that you're uh, you're you're inviting me to discourse when you're really expressing yourself, right? And so when I make a comment on that, that feels like an attack because I was just expressing my point of view. I don't need input. I'm saying this is where I am. I'm not asking for input. I want somebody to listen, right? Um, if I'm trying to engage in uh, acts of persuasion, that would be a very different exercise where I would expect interaction and I would expect to engage in kind of the, you know, like in social judgment theory, I want to know a little bit about where that latitude of adjustment is so that I can engage with that, right? That's very different than in the case of coercion where I'm trying to enforce a point of view or, or, um, or um, it, you know, if, if, uh, if someone's walking out in front of a bus, it's not about my self-expression. It's not even about persuasion. I'm trying to coerce them out of the way of the bus. So I think one of the challenges is understanding where each other are coming from as we're, uh, as we're communicating in the public square um, and the more people you have in the mix and the less we have invested uh, in kind of a, um, an assurance of the, the, the listening stance, the more that there's, uh, there's room for, for this to kind of blow up. I think I have another really simple answer, too. No, this is, yeah, we sound like a bunch of eggheads. So let me see if you agree, Scott. Okay. When I was a kid on the playground, if I came home in elementary school and told my mom and dad that someone had hit me and knocked me down, they would sit me down and say, listen, you have to defend yourself. Don't let people shove you down. You can get hurt. And that's just, you have to, in order for people to leave you alone, you have to not take that. If I came home and said someone called me a name, they would laugh and say, and? Because sticks and stones, right? And so I think that is way different from the, my students I know who are very tuned in to how an, an insult, a spoken insult, might be perceived as harmful. And they're ready to react against that, where I was taught there's no need to react against that. Wow, you just sounded like the oldest man ever. I know. I'm so sorry. I have to go take my Geritol now. Back in now. my day. Back in my day. Yeah. But I think it's different, though. I think, I think people... Oh, you don't agree. You're shrugging like no, you No, I'm didn't. listening. Oh. <laughs> Disagree. Okay. That's a great question, though. Thank you for asking. Uh, can I weigh in on this question about at what point do things get... Uh, where there is a lack of civility, is there something about group size that comes into play seems to be what you're asking and with the two of you you've had many conversations where it's just the two of you and you do not have an instrumental view of the other and by that i mean you are not using the other person for your own gain 
you have a relationship. What happens with larger crowds is there's a lack of a personal relationship. And so my opponent is a barrier or some kind of foil, and I will twist my opponent's words uh, in order to create a straw man argument, which we studied, that would be easy to then make myself look good. And on social media, the goal is often not to change someone's mind that we are having an argument with, but to build our credits, our likes, to influence those who might be listening in. And so I think we take a, whenever we take an instrumental view of the other person, um, that's, and that's literally what happens in presidential uh, political debates. You know, you're trying to influence uh, an electorate, not change the other politician's mind. But you care about each other. There's a relationship there. And you want to understand where the other one is coming from. And you also want to change each other's minds, right? <laughs> but there's a relationship first. Right. Right. I, John, it's really interesting that you, you, uh, you reminded me of something that's been bothering me lately. So uh, at what, what is today's date? Are we on the 4th of yes. October? Um, so what's recently, uh, Lindsey Graham has um, been defending uh, Donald Trump for trying to get uh, information. I know I'm, I'm summarizing, but I, the summary is uh, Lindsey Graham is defending Donald Trump for trying to get dirt on Joe Biden and his son in the Ukraine. But what's been bothering me? is I remember a couple of years ago after Bo Biden died that there was a video clip that was on the news about um, Lindsey Graham, and he was sitting in the back of a car talking about how good a man Joe Biden is. Mm. And he was choked up. He said, if you ever want to find a better man uh, than Joe Biden, I dare you to try because there just isn't. And he was just so, it was such a touching moment in the back of the vehicle a couple of years ago about how great a guy Joe Biden is, how sad he is for him for losing his son. And then you've got to go what's going on today with, uh, uh, you know, well, listen, Joe Biden may be a criminal in this. And it's so upsetting to some of us because we assume that the brotherhood is more important than, or that, 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 uh, Feeling that pathos is more important than whatever uh, political gamesmanship may be going on, and that's not what's that's not what's happening. And it's so uh, it's so shocking to me. I guess that's their job, and they know it's their job. But it is shocking uh, for the rest of us in the public square to hear, "Oh, it doesn't matter that much." You uh, you may have these feelings uh, for your for your neighbor, but when you're when you and your neighbor are in the uh, in in the Colosseum, then all the knives are out, and we're just going to stab, stab, stab. Good, that's a good point. Okay, so what do you do when people, I guess when people won't listen? So you mentioned listening earlier and that y'all listen to each other. So when, um, I guess just when people aren't open to having a discourse, what do you do? I think that's easier for me to answer than you because there aren't many libertarians in the United States and a lot of people think that it's, it is a perspective of policy that cannot literally exist. You know, and so 
I hear a lot of people who give me, and, and those of you listening can't see this, but they give me the hand wave like, oh, you know, you guys, that'll never work. Okay. You know, we'll never have a system where people don't want to tax other people for medical care or for um, any for the National Endowment of the Arts. I pick on them a lot, the National Endowments. And so that, that'll never work. So I, I hear that a lot, and I, wh what that means is that I never get to get into the high, high, high weeds of what it might look like to have a libertarian society and how it might work, because I'm always at the bottom of saying, well, can't you at least admit that it's better to be free than coerced? I mean, I'm always at the, at the very beginning of the arguments before people go, I don't think that'll work. <laughs> so the answer is I try to remain calm. I try not to... I try to keep it on an intellectual level uh, where I can at least get people to think about some of the libertarian and classical liberal parts of our government now and in the past and how they worked and just try to hope for the best that it moves the needle a little bit. What do you do when people don't listen to progress? Well, just a couple of days ago, you and I were talking about um, evangelism, not on the podcast, but we were talking about in the, in the writing center, we were talking about evangelism. And I think... This is one of the ways that, you know, some of my thoughts about evangelism and my thoughts about coercion in the public square intersect is uh, let's take it away from politics for a second and just think about it in terms of evangelism, in terms of sharing the gospel. Um, I used to be a full-time paid evangelist, and it was my job to try and persuade people. And what do you do when people aren't willing to listen? And that was easy. You stopped talking, <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, you know, we, we evangelize to people who are interested in King Olaf in Sweden. And uh, this is around the, the turn of the first century, the, uh, turn of the second century, at about 1000-ish AD. King Olaf of Sweden was a great evangelist. And what he would do is he would build a pot of fire on someone's. He'd tie them to the ground, build a, build a fire on their stomach, and then ask them if they would like to be baptized, right? Which was very effective. He got a lot of people baptized. He did a lot of stuff like this. He, it, it's, it's not evangelism. Um, evangelism is interacting with people in such a way that um, we share with them some story that it doesn't even belong to us. It belongs to someone else. And um, it's not so much that I'm concerned about making other people listen as much as it is about being a person who listens more. I can't make you listen. I can listen more and be responsible for that on, on my side. Well, let's take that out of the context of evangelism and come back to interacting with others in the public square. I can't make people listen. Um, and as when I accept that I can't force other people to do something, I can't coerce them to listen to me or to accept uh, what I have, then, um, then I have two options. One is to listen more because I can control that. And then the second is to really spend time uh, looking for if there is a place where, where persuasion can or should happen uh, uh, to wait for those to happen. Now, I want to be careful. I don't mean that I listen waiting for my moment. It's um, something we've said, we've said it on the podcast a couple times. I am not interested in changing his point of view. I might be interested in changing yours, um, uh, but I'm not interested in changing Cole's, and I'll tell you why. It's because uh, 
I've spent a lot of time with him, and I know it's 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 held his his point of view is held deeply. It's held ethically. It's held in terms of values, and it doesn't seem appropriate to me to change Cole's mind. I'll argue with him all day long, but at the end of the day, I expect him to argue with me all day tomorrow long too, right? It's um, and and we enjoy that kind of interaction, um, but. It's true that there are people who aren't able to to have that conversation, and um, we just may not be able to. If they're not if they're not able to listen, then I'm not going to try and coerce it. Um, one of the quotes I call it the money quote from the book we're reading from Alan Jacobs, yeah. How to Think. Um, well, I thought I had it pulled up here. My computer went to sleep, but he says. Seek out the best representation of the position you disagree with. Here it is. Seek out the best, the smartest, most sensible, most fair-minded representatives of the positions you disagree with. That seems to be modeled here in what, what you guys are doing. So that's, that's the money quote. You're living the money quote from that book. Well, you know, in the scientific method, both in, in, in quantitative and in qualitative methods of, of social science, you know, we're trying to establish in some way um, a, a, a representation of reason, right? Uh, some systematic form of inquiry. And so in the case of uh, quantitative, if we're doing hypothesis testing, we don't test the higher hypothesis, we test the null hypothesis, right? We ask we have some hypothesis, we identify its opposite, and we actually test the opposite. Or oftentimes in qualitative research, you'll do negative case analysis, where you know, we th I think I'm starting to see some process happening, I'll go look for the opposite and, and, and investigate that, and that gives me some way of understanding. It's a great way of really uh, uh, trying to, I don't know that, a, I just uh, finished doing a screencast on uh, objectivity. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing as objectivity, but we can at least practice the work of trying to really understand something that is very, very different than what I expect. And I think that's an ultimate expression of r reason. I don't know that it's, I, I, I think we worship at the feet of rationality too much, but I think it works in terms of reason. And, um, uh, and I will say, I, I Look, this is just important for uh, for Joe Sixpack, but for those of us who belong to the way, it's an imperative uh, because that's my first responsibility. That's my prime directive is to love my neighbor. Then we figure everything else out. That's a, that is a money quote from Alan Jacobs, and I think that it's so accurate. And I'll tell you why. If you get if you ask everyone who believes in single-payer health care, who considers himself a Democrat or a, a progressive and whatever label they want, to all assemble in Cullen Auditorium and put me on the stage saying, I think maybe we shouldn't have single-payer health care, that conversation is not going to go very far. But if I talk to this guy who wants single-payer health care, and he and I have a conversation, and he says, I this is my situation with my health or my family's health. This is really bad. I, it's not that I want to go and just take all this money from rich people because I hate them. It's because I, you know, I think it's a better position for a country to be in. I am really, 
I'm on a one-on-one situation, I can much better understand why that person has a significantly different political viewpoint point from me. And I also have people who have said to me, how can you call yourself a Christian or an American if you don't think sick people should be helped? And then it's my job to explain that libertarians don't believe that sick people shouldn't be helped, that they actually care very much about most libertarians and most people care quite a bit about sick people being helped. It's just a different way that we would go about it. And I see people go, you know, oh, I guess you're not a complete individualist jerk. You actually have feelings about this that matter. So seeing past each other's results to each other's heart is a way of looking at that quote that I've seen in my life, people assuming the the best once they learn it. Also, people are not isms. Right. Um, You know, uh, in... um, in disability circles, we don't we, we try to be very, very careful not to refer to people as their disability. So we refer to them as persons with dyslexia, right? Instead of saying he's a dyslexic. Because is is a linking verb, right? And so I I am, uh, and then we say that's the equal. It's the same thing. And it's not the same thing. I'm a person and I have a disability. That's a very different conversation than I am a person who is a disability. And you know what? It's the same thing with everything else. Cole is not a libertarian. He is a person who has libertarian views, right? And it is so easy to treat people as, as, as an ism or it's so easy to treat people as a caricature of themselves, especially when I don't know them. I can't get away with calling Cole an ism. I can't get away with caricaturizing him as uh, whatever cartoon uh, uh, picture of a libertarian looks like in my mind because that caricature, that cartoon is a person wearing a top hat and a three-piece tuxedo or a long-tails tuxedo. I guess there's no such thing. But anyway, he wears a lot. It looks like the guy from uh, a Monopoly, yeah. right? Monocle. Right, he's got a monocle on, and is and he's hoarding all of his money. That's the cartoon. My friend is not that way at all. He's generous. He's kind. He's understanding of other people. If I'm going to treat him as a cartoon version of himself, or if I'm going to treat other libertarians as cartoon versions of that, I'm going to miss understanding that person. Right. So people are not isms. They uh, and, and and by the way. Just take a listen, turn on your favorite tele, uh, news show tonight, and that's exactly what you'll hear is categorizing folks. We're constantly putting people into the categories and equating them with their point of view and then judging them as a, uh, accordingly. And that's just not fair. Yep. It's not fair to do to libertarians. It's not fair to do to socialists. Um, it's, it's not fair to do to anybody. Um, my question is, is that um, a lot of the times in college you're taught to stick stick to your beliefs like and everything like that but also be open-minded and it's always annoyed me so much about how those two things contradict each other constantly telling you just be strong and don't uh, like lose your beliefs or don't like let other people tell you what to do but at the same time they're telling you listen to other people like keep an open mind i was just wondering how y'all That's dealt great. with this yeah i think i think people say in a clumsy way they're trying to say something that's kind of profound, but they're being clumsy about it. I think what I would want for my children in college or my students is to learn how to defend their position 
while still taking advantage of the fact they're at a university and being aware of other opinions as they discern how they're going to move forward. So I think it's a good sentiment to say, stick to your beliefs and learn from other people, which seems contradictory. Better to say, learn how to think well and critically and learn how to defend your position and keep finding your position. So um, I'm, I'm cool with that. I'm a full-on, I don't know if full-on constructivist works. I am oftentimes constructivist. What that means is I think that knowledge is built in communities. It's not, built, it's not something that one person owns. It's something that we create together. We construct together. So you're no Platonist? No. Uh, no. But the, I, the reason I think that's important is um, I know what my values are. I know what's important to me uh, because I'm a member of the way. I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto that day. I know whom I belong to. So that's something that's not really negotiable. I don't, nobody else gets to claim that of me. I don't get to claim that of me. I don't belong to myself. I belong to Christ. So that's, that's, uh, that's something that's not – that's immutable. Uh, everything else is mutable for me. Everything else is on the table. And, um, and I put it on the table in some ways because I have that security that neither height nor depth nor breadth nor width can separate me from the love of God. I have that security and that foundation to draw from. So I can put everything else on the table. Um, and uh, so I, I, think, I think Cole is on to something when he says know how to argue vigorously but also know how to be persuaded, uh, not only to persuade, but also to be persuaded. Yeah, that's really important. I, am, I, I changed several of my ways of thinking about things when I was a college student. I came in one way and left another way because I was, I was exposed to wonderful ideas and wonderful books. So I think that's really important. I did not enter a, a Christian and leave a non-Christian or, or enter the other way around. Um, but I did change some of the ways I understood my faith, and I wasn't shaken by that. I was, I was uh, lifted up. And let me say something in praise of the English teacher for just a minute, because we were talking about this a couple of days ago, is when I remember some of those moments that the shift happened for me and big, big lights uh, were, were flipped on was during sophomore lit. Not... In, not in John's communication class. John was not a teacher in those days. Uh, not in, um, uh, um, I'll, I'll say it wasn't even in Bible class. Or not daily chapel. Nope. It was in literature. And the reason was I spent a few minutes thinking about the world through Bartleby the Scrivener's point of view, right? And it was bizarre, and I didn't quite understand it, but I had to try. And I had to understand uh, the world through Beowulf's point of view and understand what heroic ideal is in Beowulf's time and how that's different from the heroic uh, concepts that we have in our culture. And it was literature that helped me understand my neighbor in ways that um, uh, were kind of fun, actually. Um, so I, I just want to take a moment to say in praise of the liberal arts education, it's important, I think, uh, to be in, an, um, in a context where we're engaged with those stories Frequently, if you'll remember back, the listeners to this podcast won't know this, but if you'll remember back to your cornerstone when uh, Dr. Beck uh, presented his uh, his lecture and uh, about literacy and the the way that literacy can change uh, 
change entire cultures. I think I think being able to engage in other people's narratives is an important uh, important process, and I would say. Be read literature. That's a that's an important first step. And most of the people that I find are recalcitrant or difficult to talk to, also have not read very many stories. And Alan Jacobs has many things to say about yeah. treating literature as your neighbor. Well, I think we're uh, out of time. I will say I'm glad I see my students taking notes because this will be on the test. Uh. <laughs>